Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. A podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And this is our first episode of 2023. Yes, it is. Wow. How time flies. And we've had one murder in Maine, haven't we? Yeah, but we don't know much about it. It's like I know they won't tell us anything. It's a guy on guy murder. So and there is a missing woman from Portland they keep talking about on the news. They won't say who, what her name is. They won't tell us what she looks like. I don't really understand the point. It's like, why tell us she's missing if you have nothing to tell us about her? I mean, yes, I'm nosy. But also, if right. I saw her walking on the street, exactly. I, I, I was just going to say that. So was. what's the point of even saying that she's missing? I don't, I don't understand it. Oh, and I wanted to, I don't think this is necessarily a correction, but a clarification. When we talked our last episode about the main homicide list that the State Department of Public Safety puts online, we said it, they had just started putting it online last year, 2022. But when you read through the list, it implies that it's been available, like it'll have some murder in 2014 and say this this was updated in 2017 like it implies people are seeing it but i don't think it was online in that form because no, we would have that form so no. my i wonder if they had it available to the press or something like that and they just put it online for everybody last year Maybe. i don't know and yeah. i don't necessarily feel compelled to find mm-hmm. out but i just want to say that in case people look at it and think well it sounds to me like it's been online because it kind of does but and i also wanted to say that one stat that they don't compile as far as domestic goes that the fbi and other places do are the kind of collateral people who are killed in a domestic like if a woman leaves her husband and she goes to stay at a friend's house and the husband goes and shoots the woman and the friend they don't count the friend as a domestic yeah. as part of the domestic where the FBI and other places do. And in fact, up to 20% of people killed in domestic violence homicides are not the target of the domestic it's violence. It's like Ron homicide. Goldman. Yep. Ron Goldman. They should call it the Ron Goldman clause. Poor Ron. Oh, but I just wanted to point that so out. So sad. Before we start, should we talk about the idaho quadruple murder a little oh yeah although if anyone's listening to this in the future they'll know all about it yeah the guy was uh arrested yes and he had gotten a master's in criminal justice and was getting a phd in one well that's what intrigues me and i wonder if it was a kind of thing like like obviously uh really poorly done but ooh, i'm gonna see if i can commit the perfect crime or i'm gonna see how it feels to be a criminal you know more as an excuse i'm not I'm not no, making excuses no, for him, but more of saying. an excuse in his brain his to kill because he's sociopath. he may have even gotten into criminal justice because he was because interested he, in yes, killing exactly. people. But if you read the affidavit, I mean, he made a lot of stupid mistakes. The Washington Post, by the way, had the entire affidavit linked, ah, so they're better than I have to read it. It doesn't say a ton more than what some of the better stories that reference it but one thing like one really stupid thing is yes he turned off his cell phone when he went to murder them but he stakes the place out like at least a dozen times over the weeks preceding it and never turned off his cell phone when he went to stake it out and it's like how do you have a master's degree in criminal justice and don't realize when they look at your phone they're not just looking at 
November 13th <laughs> or whatever. They're looking at <laughs> duh. I don't know. I don't unless he wanted to get caught. I don't, know. I don't think he did. I think no, I don't just... think he did. I think he just like every criminal made mistakes, even though he should have been at least had more of a knowledge base than the Ugh. average criminal. There's always people that have to, you know, put their two cents in, and there's well, all we sorts put of our talk two about. Cents in. We put our. I know, two but, cents, but we're judging right. like the roommate. Like, well, why did she do what she did? Oh, Who the hell knows? Right. We'll find out more. It'll be interesting to see what exactly happened and. Maybe he'll right. say why he didn't. And, and kill for her. people who don't no. know, one of the roommates who wasn't killed heard noises and stuff. And I'm I'm condensing the whole thing here, yes. but looked out of her room. He was coming down the hall. She froze in fear. He walked by her. I think he walked by her. It's not yeah. really clear. And went mm-hmm. out and she closed her door. And then the next morning, she and the other living roommate when the other kids didn't get up they went and started checking on them and thought one was passed out first of all hindsight is awesome yes. but you don't know at four o'clock in the morning when you're living in a house with six 20 somethings and their assorted friends what the hell's going on exactly. and it doesn't necessarily register this has been a murder and i need to do something i think people who are questioning her are being very hard on her because yeah. unless you're in the situation you have no fucking idea. I know, I know, react. and you don't know wh- how you're going to react. You don't know if she or had what been you're drinking, think. Right. or if she was just in shock and just. The information is from the police affidavit, yeah. And as we know, yeah. it's not a complete and total detailed exactly. account of what she said or felt. And I also but, heard somebody on TV questioning. And I can't remember who it was they were questioning, but I think it was somebody in law enforcement. Do you think his criminal justice education had anything to do with this? And the person's like, no, because then he would have blah, 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 done this or this or that. And I'm like, you don't know. I think it obviously had something to do with some I think of it. it has somehow. something to do with There's it. There's some connection. I there mean, is a connection. I don't know what, what direction the connection's going in. Right. If he, but. I'm sure there's some that has right. something to do with right. it. Right. Yeah. Good. I think we both agree. And, and we always do. We well, always not do. always. Well, not always. But when we disagree, it's over intelligent points of, <laughs> of context. So, but speaking of stupid idiot criminals, Ooh, yeah. I have an update. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And most of this comes from ct insider ct standing for connecticut i don't want to get a subscription or renew my subscription sorry folks to the hartford current and stuff because i'm trying to cut down on my expenses so in the better late than never update category (laughs) this is an update to episode 24 which dropped in may 2017 and that episode we covered the december 23rd 2015 murder of connie margata debate 39 by her husband richard debate Mm. at the time of the episode debate had just been arrested on murder charges you may remember it as the fitbit murder Mm, yeah because data on connie's fitbit contradicted his story about what happened and that was part of the evidence against him Mm. i'd totally forgotten to update it and over the years though i never forgot about that episode in fact i'm using like a fitbit angle in my <laughs> the book i've been writing forever since then i had in my head that he'd been convicted because it had been so long well i was watching the latest episode of dateline the other night and they did that and it turned out he was only convicted last may 
when he was found guilty after a 22-day trial and sentenced in August to 65 years in prison, 60 years for murder and five years for tampering with evidence, and one year to serve concurrently for giving a false statement to police. The trial had been delayed first by his attorney filing the typical delaying tactics and things, then by COVID, then by his attorney dying. Mm. And then, so the trial was, he was arrested in 2017. The trial was five years after he was arrested. You can't really blame me totally for forgetting. (laughs) I'm just saying. You can watch the Dateline episode, but I'll recap a little anyway. It's another case where a hardworking, intelligent, giving, generous woman who everybody loves is somehow paired up with a stupid loser dirtbag jerk I know. who ends up killing her. Women, come on. Well, I know you it's know, tough we, out it, there, but well, people don't like being alone and our choices aren't great. See, I, I prefer shit. being alone, but the most of the women we know who are paired up with a fella are, you know, settling. So anyway, on Dateline, Andrea. No comment. And, and, what? Why no me. comment? Well, because you said cons- most of the women are settling. But do you consider yourself in a relationship? No, not really. Oh, so you don't it's want to admit of, it. You don't want to admit it. Your exes with it's benefits. It's complicated. Yeah. Anyway, Andrea Canning does the Dateline. She's my least favorite Dateline host. <laughs> and she leaves out a lot of information. But she's so- pretty. Yeah, she's all right. She's blonde with makeup on, you know, whatever. Whatever. Anyway, the case itself was kind of typical. Connie was shot to death and debate suffered superficial wounds during a quote unquote home invasion. And I don't have to tell you guys that a huge red flag is that when the wife dies pretty decisively, in Connie's case, she was shot in the stomach and Mm. head with a 357 Magnum. Mm. But the husband, who you'd think the intruder would be super focused on killing right away because he's bigger and stronger and more of a threat, only has superficial wounds. Debate claimed he dropped off their sons at school, and their sons were six and nine at the time, and was on his way to work when he got a notification that his home alarm had gone off, and he also said he forgot his laptop for work and had to go home and get it. When he got home, he heard a noise upstairs, so went to see, and the Mm -hmm. intruder leapt out of the closet in their bedroom and attacked him, hitting him in the head, demanding his wallet and ATM pins. See, I was trying to not say pin number. ATM machine pin (laughs) numbers. While this was going on, he heard his wife, who'd been at the gym, come in the house downstairs. He yelled at her to run. But she must not have run, but instead went down to the basement to get the handgun that Uh he had stored down there, which was like locked in a safe or something. They had just recently bought it. She hated guns, was scared of them, and didn't want to have anything to do with them, by the way. The intruder ran down and somehow got the gun from her and shot her. Debate ran down to see what was going on, and the intruder then tortured him with a box cutter and a blowtorch as Debate was tied to a chair. Now, if you remember, Dateline didn't make a big deal about this, but we did in our episode. He was tied to a folding metal chair with one wrist and one leg. So (laughs) that is not really incapacitating. A folding metal chair weighs, what, a few pounds? You have one wrist and one leg tied to the chair. I mean, conceivably, you could actually swing around and hit the guy with the chair. Also, if you walked in the house and your husband yelled, honey... There's an intruder. Would you 
go down in the basement or would you run the fuck back out the door you just came in and, and call 911 yeah. or something well but, and also know. he didn't even say there's an intruder he just yelled at her to run what a stupid story. I, I know okay. I, I know the story is stupid in many ways which is why the police arrested him the good for them anyway where was i he was tied to the folding <laughs> metal chair debate claimed he managed to somehow grab the blowtorch and scare the guy off then he crawled still attached to the chair up to the kitchen managed to trip the silent alarm or call the alarm company or something that's where the paramedics and cops found him lying in blood with the stupid chair still attached <laughs> although I shouldn't laugh the poor woman died and he was Idiot, lying on the though. floor, seemingly semi-conscious, but he wasn't hurt bad enough to have lost consciousness. So whatever. Of course, the first question is, why didn't the intruder shoot debate? He shot Connie. It was a 357 Magnum. There's more than two bullets. Why did he not shoot him instead of playing around with a little box cutter and a blowtorch? If anything, he's going to torture him with the gun if he still hasn't gotten the pins. <laughs> And he apparently had already gotten his wallet, this fictional intruder. Evidence against debate was many, many, many things. I won't go into all of it, but his cell phone shows he never drove toward work that day. And that his call, he said he had pulled over to call his supervisor to text or email her from the phone or something. And it shows that that was done when he was at home. The data on his wife's Fitbit showed she was walking around the house a lot. And for a good hour after the attack happened, she had something like in the hour from nine to 10, he said it happened right after nine in the hour from nine to 10, she had like 1200 and something steps. And any of us who has a Fitbit knows in your house, getting 1200 steps means you're moving around the house. It was 125 steps from her car to the back door and then down to the basement where the police wondered why if it happened right after nine, it took an hour to call. But, you know, he claimed he was like semi-conscious on the floor, but but her Fitbit shows that she was doing stuff around the house for that hour. His half-assed story kept changing to accommodate evidence that became uncovered. (laughs) No intruder showed up on any of the neighborhood's surveillance cameras. This is one of your wealthy Connecticut neighborhoods with like acre size yards you know those pseudo colonial newish houses and you know everybody's got fucking surveillance cops who arrived in the immediate aftermath with a sniffer dog Hmm. tried to track down the trail of the intruder but the dog (laughs) would go out the door the intruder (laughs) went out go around the house and come back the front door and walk up to debate who was sitting there talking to the cops that's right this happened several times until the last time when debate was in the ambulance and the dog went to the ambulance (laughs) instead of the dog's like listen (laughs) how many times do i have to tell you guys it was was a very cute german shepherd i can't remember what its name was it was something like rocco and it was so happy it was doing its job they did find his wallet in the backyard but nothing had been taken out of it Oh, and also, he had a secret girlfriend who was seven months pregnant at the time Uh, of murder, uh, who he'd given the impression that he and Connie were getting a divorce, even though that was a secret to Connie's family and all her friends who had no clue that there was going to be any divorce. On December 22nd, the day before Connie's murder, DeBate texted his girlfriend, telling her the divorce was imminent and saying, I'll see you tomorrow, my little love nugget. How bad for that woman. I do too. The crime. Crime 
that debate described was similar to a notorious one a few years before mm-hmm. in Connecticut in which a woman and her two daughters were tortured, assaulted, and ultimately murdered after a home invasion by two dirtbag guys, uh-huh. one of them who took the mother around to ATMs to try to get their money. So uh-huh. just like good old wife killer Jeff McDonald decades uh-huh. before, debate got a script from a real and notorious crime. But in the real crimes, there wasn't a barely injured husband to go along with the totally dead wife as there was with McDonald and debate. And of course, in McDonald, there was also two terribly killed kids in Jeffrey McDonald. The wife and kids were brutally beaten. Uh, thank you. Total yes. overkilled. And he had a couple little, you know, yes. in debate's defense, there was unidentified male DNA on the gun which they'd only recently bought, as I said, and on the back doorknob. To listen to Dateline, this is a big deal, and there was a trail of DNA and blah, 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 and then she never mentions it again. She doesn't say how the prosecution addressed it. It was very annoying, so I had to go look it up because she never brings it up again. And since she won't tell you, Andrea Canning, even though she makes in five minutes what I make in a year, mm. I'll tell you that, it's it's so not, that the experts testified at the trial that it's not uncommon to find unidentified DNA on things like a gun that was just recently sold or a doorknob to a back door exactly. going in and out. I think people are given the impression that, ooh, if there's DNA here, it's from the killer. But the thing is, like, how often do you wipe off your the doorknob to your back door? I know. Every I know. person who touches it their dna's on there debates lawyer trent lalima said at the time of the sentencing back in august that he would appeal i couldn't find any updates to that he also tried to get debate released on an appeal bond but that didn't work as state yeah. attorney matthew gadansky pointed out connecticut law does not allow appeal bonds in murder cases <laughs> you who don't know an appeal bond is you're out on bail while you're appealing your Pending case which appeal. can take years and, and they're very rare these days. Michael Skakel's about the only one that's ever going to get one of those. Oh, yeah. Before his sentencing debate said to the judge, I'm here before you as an innocent man. Connie mm. was killed by an unknown individual during a home invasion. I will never stop fighting for justice for my wife, Connie, Aww. who I think about every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bet he thinks about, gee, I wish I had done that differently. (laughs) Kodansky, the prosecutor in his closing statement said this was a cold methodical plan to avoid the consequence of his infidelity. And I want to point out, you could put it that way. And of course, his lawyer on Dateline was like, who's going to kill somebody just because he has a pregnant girlfriend? Well, it happens all the fucking time. No, that's not the only reason is that that book erased about Eraser Killers by Marilyn Strong, which I highly recommend if you can find it. I had to buy a used version on Amazon because it came out in like 2008. It hasn't been reprinted, but it's an excellent book that looks at these guys who their wife is just inconvenient to the life they want to live. They don't want to be a divorced guy paying child support. They don't want to be a divorced guy with the ex calling up and bitching at him in their you know, perception and stuff. They don't want her to exist anymore. Yes, exactly. And yeah. and I don't understand why in 2022 people are not getting that. That it's not. Oh, who's going to kill somebody just because? Uh, I know. And like, like and, all these other killings haven't occurred already. Right. 
Right. It's the Women, first time it ever happened. In fact, pregnancy, whether it's the yeah. the unknown girlfriend's pregnancy or the, the guy's partner's pregnancy is one of the biggest things that causes Lacey Peterson. Yeah, there's many, many. Connie was described by friends and family as a fun, generous, caring person and loving mother with a good sense of humor. She worked to help family members with medical problems. Her brother was in the hospital with a medical problem. She went to see him every day, even though she had a busy, Uh long hours job as a pharmaceutical rep. She lifted people's spirits with her words and actions, they told CT Insider. The debate's young sons, six and nine, when their mother was killed, went to live with their aunt Leslie Garabedian after debate was arrested in April 2017. By then, another of Connie's sisters said, all but $6.24 of Connie's money had disappeared from her accounts. Connie was a pharmaceutical rep, which is a high paying job. He, of course, was an information technology. If you see the house and neighborhood, they obviously did very well. But anyway, all but $6.24 had disappeared from her accounts in the year and a half between the time she was killed and he was arrested. One of the kids' aunt says it was not even enough to buy a shirt, shoes, or a backpack for the boys. One Christmas after Connie's death, one of the boys said to his aunt, do you know what I want for Christmas? And the aunt thought he was going to ask for a toy or something. And he said, said, I want my mom back for three days or just three hours. <laughs> and now we're going to take a break while Becky cries. <laughs> you know, I was thinking too, and that other woman. So there's three kids. This idiot's oh, girlfriend oh, was pregnant. Oh, right, right. So he has three children yeah. who have a loser father, and two of them have no mother mm-hmm. because the guy's a fucking moron. Fortunately, they have a loving family. And the thing is, these men. It never occurs to them what he's doing to his children. I know. To take their mother away from them. He doesn't want her around, so he doesn't have the insight, because he's totally self-absorbed, to understand that other people may want her around, even if he doesn't. I mean, the huge majority of people in that situation get a divorce. But that's my update. And unfolding right now is the woman... That in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, in Cohasset. So. Yeah, who was commuting to Washington, D.C. to work, mother of three kids. And the first story, her husband said she got an Uber at 4 a.m. And I'm reading it and I texted you and I, and at first I let, I'm like, oh, it was the Uber driver. Because I thought it was established that she got an Uber. And then you realize it's the husband's work. She got an Uber and it's the husband. He's gotten arrested, not for her murder, but for giving false evidence to police. But on the news tonight, that there was blood found in the house. He's an ass. Yeah, he's... take a look at him. I know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but... Uh, And also he was arrested for fraud several years ago for selling two fake Andy Warhol paintings. And I heard some people on TV saying, well, that's obviously a totally different crime. And I'm like, actually, it's not. Because what kind of person he is. Right. Well, because he'll do what he needs to do to get what he wants. And in that Eraser Killers book, a lot of those guys were fraudsters and con men. And also there's the thing, well, this person's never been violent before. A lot of these murders, I mean, they are violent and that somebody was killed. And they said that about debate. Well, he's never shown any violence. 
it's not about him like going nuts in, in a fit of anger and killing her. It's about him planning to k- get rid of her. And the only way he can is by killing well, her. Yeah, because Chris Watts wasn't violent either. Right. Uh, you would think, again, that people would in this day and age understand that it's the shit is more nuanced since it's happening all the fucking time and we could talk about it all night yes. but don't you have a story yes i do and it's tell? and it's much different oh good I, than normal well not much different but it's different it's something different i could it is I, main related though the 16 counties in our state are It's a main story, and it's interesting because even though I was around when it happened, well, when the events, all the events in the story happened, mm. it, it goes over like 50 years. I don't remember. Oh, I'm lo- intrigued. So, yes, you'll like it. There are parts of it you'll really like, I'm sure. My sources are the Bangor Daily News, Lewiston Daily Sun, whatever it's called now some uh, journal well some of them started right. so how they were labeled i used newspapers.com bitterford Saco journal and the journal tribune central morning sentinel is that now the water is it it's just stuff? the morning sentinel waterville is not in the name the kennebec journal the press herald also like every newspaper in maine almost every, pretty much every newspaper in maine yeah. wgme and wcsh a little bit and maine department of corrections website so let me get started. oh yeah i'm excited in january 2022 a short obituary appeared online this is what it said warren arnold F. Nash, 68, passed away on Thursday, January 13, 2022, in Rockport, Maine. No services will be held at this time. Short and to the point, with the decedent's birthday and death date underneath a photo, July 14, 1953, to January 13, 2022. On January 14, headlines announced that a Maine inmate who had escaped three times had died in custody. The short article in the Bangor Daily News had the most information and said, in part, Arnold Nash, 68, died about 5.30 p.m. Thursday at the Warren Prison, according to the Maine Department of Corrections. The Maine Attorney General's Office and the Medical Examiner's Office were notified of his death as a standard procedure. I'm assuming the obituary said he died in Rockport because the Pembe Medical Center is the closest hospital to mm-hmm. the prison. It's about yeah, 11 miles from the prison. There was a little more information, which I'll get to later, but none of the news stories in the papers and on TV said how he died or if he had any family left or gave any information about him at all. I first noticed Arnold Nash during his third escape attempt. As I've said, I often take screenshots of headlines or take a photo of a newspaper page to remind me of stories I want to revisit or delve into. When I was trying to figure out what to cover for this episode, I found a short item about Arnold's escape while scrolling through my 2018 photos Mm. on my phone. I'd forgotten all about him. And while he was in the main news off and on for most of his adult life, I didn't remember Arnold Nash. His name and face didn't ring a bell. I didn't even remember taking a photo of that newspaper page almost four years ago. But I knew I snapped the photo for a reason. So I decided this would be the time to find out about Arnold, the prison escapee. I tried to find out about Arnold Freeman Nash's childhood, family, where he grew up, etc. And it was not easy. 
Some reports said he was born in Bangor, but I couldn't find any birth announcement. He was described as being from Ellsworth, Sullivan, and East Eddington. Ellsworth is the largest town near Sullivan, so I can see that. But I don't know where East Eddington, which is up near Bangor, came from. It was in one article and appeared in several subsequent ones. So in any case, the first mention of Arnold Nash in any public records is an appearance in the 5th District Court in Ellsworth on November 16, 1972. 19-year-old Arnold Nash of Ellsworth was convicted of larceny and given one year of probation though the sentence if served would be at the main correctional center in Wyndham, which is a medium or minimum security prison. In later articles about Arnold, it was reported that his first escape was 1973 from the Wyndham Correctional Center. This was reported and repeated a couple of times, although the first article that mentioned it and subsequent ones said the details, quote, weren't clear. I think the details weren't clear because they were wrong. Mm. Just saying. From my research... His first escape was from a pre-release center in Bangor in 1975. Arnold was finishing up a sentence on an armed robbery charge. This was a different crime that occurred after he finished with his one-year sentence for larceny that he received in 1972. And maybe he escaped in 1973, but I couldn't find anything about that. If you don't know, a pre-release center is like a halfway house. The former prisoners are still in custody, but they are working and living in a more home-like setting. Some of them have jobs and they leave to work and come back, but they are not free to leave and they can't just go wherever they please. This pre-release center was at the Bangor Mental Health Institute, but I don't think the pre-release center was for mental health patients. I believe the halfway house was just located on the grounds because it was run by the state and the state owned the land and probably had residential dwellings on the property that they could use. On Thursday, September 25th, 1975, the Bangor Daily News had a small item on the second page. The headline was pre-release inmate escapes. It read, a young Ellsworth man finishing out a prison term for armed robbery at the pre-release center at Bangor Mental Health Institute was declared an escapee Wednesday afternoon. Arnold Nash reportedly had left the center earlier in the day on a limited short-term pass. He failed to return at the expected time in the afternoon, and authorities at BMHI subsequently notified state and local police. Nash, 22, reportedly was last seen in Bangor about 2.30 p.m. getting into a light gray vehicle with out-of-state registration plates. At the time, he was wearing a brown sweater and tan trousers and a raincoat. He was described as being 5 foot 8, 135 pounds with blue eyes and blonde hair. The convicted robber reportedly has several tattoos, including love on his fingers and mom with a heart on one arm. Mm. And can he have more cliche cliche tattoos? (laughs) On Sunday night, October 5th, Arnold turned himself in to Maine State Police, according to the newspapers. The short articles don't specify, but I think he must have called police and had them pick him up. Also, I wonder if when he was picked up by police, he was in East Eddington because the report said he was in Penobscot County. That was the only time that I've seen it mentioned that he's from East Eddington. So I wondered if he was in East Eddington. Mm -hmm. And when they reported it, they said he was from. Or maybe a family member lived there. That's where he was. And the reporter assumed, okay, he went home to his parents. Both the Lewiston Daily Sun and the Biddeford Soccer Journal said it, but it doesn't really matter. But that was the only time. 
At the time of his escape, Arnold would have been eligible for parole on November 8th, a little more than a month later. May no longer has parole. In 1976, the state got rid of the parole system. My simplified explanation of parole is that when you are sentenced to a prison term and deemed eligible for parole, every so often you go up before the parole board to see if you are okay to be released back into society. At this time, people testify, your caseworker, victims, and or their families or other people who are involved in the case. The parole board decides if you should stay in prison or not. Maine decided this was a problematic solution for several reasons, one of them being victims were constantly having to relive the crime. There were other concerns as well. I'm sure the current system of probation, which I'll explain in a minute, is a lot less expensive which is usually how they decide on things. I'm not saying I agree with the parole system anyway, but the way it's done now is you are sentenced to say 20 years with all but 10 suspended. This means you will go to prison for 10 years. And then when you get out, you'll be on probation for 10 years. If you stay good, you'll stay out. But if you violate probation, you may have to go back and serve out the rest of the 20 years, if not more for new charges. You also have conditions of probation that you have to follow depending on the crime. I believe the last prisoner under the parole system recently died. I could be wrong about that, but I remember reading something like that recently. And since it was 1976, it was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So The subject of parole is relevant to the story. So remember, anyone who was sentenced prior to 1976 could be eligible for parole, even if the crime was really bad. I think this came up in the Albert Flick episode, which mm-hmm. was episode 54, too old, whatever it was. So anyway, Arnold went back to the prison in Thomaston after he ran away from Bangor. That was where the prison was back then. I don't know how long, but he was definitely out by April 1979 when he was indicted for Class B burglary of a home in Hancock. Although I couldn't find any information on the court proceedings for this crime, Arnold ended up with a four-year sentence, and back he went to the Maine State Prison in Thomaston. On Wednesday, July 15th, 1981, At 3 p.m., Arnold Nash, along with his fellow inmate and buddy, Milton Wallace, walked away from their work detail, digging a ditch in a potato field at the South Warren prison farm. The escape was not reported to the press right away. I'm sure the prison thought they'd round the two up pretty quickly, but they didn't. There were five men on the crew working that day, including Arnold and Milton. Milton Wallace, by the way, was serving a life sentence for murder. I'll talk about him later. But for now, I'll say Milton would have been eligible for parole in June of 1982. Mm. So 11 months later, after the escape, Arnold's sentence was due to end May of 1983. So he had almost two years left to go. Prison warden Paul Vestal was sure the two were in the immediate area. They were still wearing prison-issued denim clothing and were presumably unarmed. Three days after the escape, patrols were added to the search. A Marine patrol airplane was patrolling the area looking for the two escapees. The inmates working on the prison farm were not minimum security prisoners, despite the fact that they were on the grounds of the minimum security prison. There was a new program that allowed inmates from the maximum security prison in Thomaston to work outside the prison in the company of an unarmed guard. Though the prison wouldn't confirm anything, a prison guard's wife told the Bangor Daily News that she didn't like the new program and was worried about her husband's safety. State police spokesman Richard Moore told the press, we had some reports of people who thought they'd spotted them, but that turned out to be someone else. There were different stories about how and when they took off. 
One story said they failed to check in at the 245 check-in the day they disappeared. But another story said the two men ran into the woods and the guard watching them couldn't chase them because he was watching the other men. But he asked for and got almost immediate help to go after them. Prison warden Paul Vestal was reluctant to answer reporters' questions as he joined in almost a week into the search on Tuesday, July 21st. The warden still felt the men were in the woods in the Midcoast area. On July 22nd, the newspapers all had stories about Arnold's fellow escapee, Milton Wallace. All along, they'd been reporting that Milton was a convicted murderer. I guess they didn't think to look into the actual crime he committed. When they did, it was front page news in all the papers. Milton was convicted of killing an eight-year-old boy in Freeport. Mm. On July 13th, 1972, eight-year-old John Nason was reported missing. The search for John lasted nine days and included both search dogs and a psychic. I don't want to go into all the details of this case because my episode is about Arnold and I really can't deal with any more dead child stories. I've had too many already in this Mm -hmm. show. So this is just a quick summary. John Nason was found under Milton Wallace's bed, wrapped in a sheet nine days after they started searching for him. Milton had been a neighbor of the Nason family. Milton went to trial in December, and on December 15th, and this is 1972, December 15th, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison by Judge Harry P. Glassman, who later became a Maine Supreme Court justice. When the jury was deliberating, they asked the judge to clarify Maine's felony murder law, and they wanted to know if sodomy was a felony. The medical examiner had found signs of sodomy when he examined the body, but because of the rate of decomposition, he couldn't determine how John Nason and died. Judge Glassman told the jury that sodomy was a felony, and if John died during the act, then Milton Wallace was guilty of murder. It only took the jury an hour to come back with the verdict. And I don't know what the laws on sodomy now. Like his friend, Arnold Nash, Milton Wallace had escaped from custody before. Milton had been committed to the Augusta State Hospital, which was the mental hospital, in the maximum security unit because he had sexually assaulted a seven-year-old boy in Sanford. This was, I think, in the late 60s. He was only gone two hours when they caught him. Warden Paul Vestal was questioned about why maximum security prisoners were working with minimum security coverage. He said Milton Wallace had been a model prisoner for the nine years he'd been in prison. The prisoners had filed a class action suit that was in the courts at that time. Warden Vestal said, the suit says we can't warehouse them. Then he acknowledged that even without the lawsuit, prisoners with good behavior have privileges that include working outside the prison on work details. Ten days into the search, police were searching the West Rockport area where there had been reports of burglaries. The search team comprised of 30 people didn't find anything. The guard who had been on detail when they escaped told newspapers that he had requested that the prison issue him a weapon, but his request was denied. When asked about this, Warden Vestal confirmed the guard's claim. He said, we never work a minimum security detail under a weapon. Minimum security is the next thing to being out. Since they are going back to the streets and adjusting to that way of life, working under unarmed supervision is part of the process of adjustment, which I understand. But But I thought they were maximum security prisoners. They are, but there's a lot of paradoxes in this Mm. whole thing. Forrest Doucette, police chief in Rockport, told reporters that a trailer near Route 90 had been burglarized and food, alcohol, cigarettes, and ammunition was stolen. This was about 10 miles from the Bolduc unit at the prison farm where the two escaped. 
Chief Doucette said the fact that the escapees took shotgun shells but left the guns gives me the impression that somewhere along the line they picked up some firearms. Warden Vestal joined the search by hopping on a helicopter that flew over the blueberry barrens and fields. Oscar and Norma Greenrose came home to their mobile home on West Street Extension in Rockport on Thursday, July 23rd, about three in the afternoon, and found that their sliding patio door had been forced open. Someone had been drinking the Green Roses liquor and beer. Empty bottles were strewn around. Mm. It looked as though someone had been trying on boots to find a pair that fit but was unsuccessful. It's just like Goldilocks Mm -hmm. and the three bears. The burglars took canned food, a can opener, as smart of them, a flashlight, 22 caliber bullets, and a guitar. They needed to have fun. (laughs) There's something about a prison outbreak and prisoners on the run that fascinates people. Where are they? Are they going to get caught? How will they get caught? It's a relief when they're caught, but kind of a disappointment when the excitement ends. Mm -hmm. And you know that every time someone escapes, it's like national news. On Tuesday, July 28th, almost two weeks after the escape, the searchers were in the South Hope area, about 15 miles north of the prison. A hiker crossed paths with Arnold and Milton near Alfred Lake. The hiker said it was obvious the two were foraging for food, and they asked him where the blueberry fields were. They were carrying a rifle in a bag, like a duffel bag or something. They told the hiker they were hunting rabbits. Warden Vestal told reporters it was difficult to sneak up on people hiding in the woods because of the noise the searchers were make going through the brush. By Thursday, July 30th, a little over two weeks after Arnold and Milton ran off, the search was focused on Searsma, about 10 to 50 miles north of Alfred Lake. There had been a burglary in a home there. Deputy Sheriff George Sprague told the newspapers, we've taken some fingerprints and turned them over to the state prison in Thomaston, but we haven't gotten any word yet saying the fingerprints matched. Just after noon on Saturday, August 1st, the Searsmont town clerk saw two men walking across a blueberry field about a mile from Route 131. Waldo County Sheriff's deputies were quickly there, followed by State Trooper Dennis Hayden of Vassalboro and Trooper Dennis McClellan of Levant. By the end, there were 150 searchers, including state troopers, prison guards, and sheriff's deputies, and a SWAT team from the state police in Scarborough. But the most important of the searchers was, Mm -hmm. as always, the police dogs yeah both the troopers named dennis had dogs with them at about 2 30 p.m claudia lewis and sears mount saw two men filching stuff from her neighbor's garden and called the police the area was sealed off and helicopters and dogs were brought in to help with the search residents who lived in the muzzy ridge area were evacuated as police continued to comb the woods and fields in fact I said there were two dogs. There were many dogs working that day, one bloodhound and 11 German shepherds, Mm -hmm. and they were let loose. And they quickly found the prisoners. Game warden John Ford told the Bangor Daily News, I was within five feet of them, but they were hidden in the brush. We could hear them talking. They told us that they had a gun pointed right at us. They did all the talking and we listened. They did more than talk. So, Mo, you need to keep calm through this part. Okay. You'll see why. Okay. Penobscot County Sheriff Timothy Richardson told the Bangor Daily News they took Trooper Dennis Hayden's dog and started tracking around. I don't know exactly how long it took, but the dog got tired and they called Denny McClellan's dog down to the scene. He and Game Warden John Ford, saying Game Warden because the other warden's a prison warden, Game Warden John Ford picked up the trail where Hayden's dog had stopped. They went about 300 or 400 yards, and when they came to the area where the subjects were, the dogs alerted. The story varies here, 
One account said police came up on the escapees from behind and warned them not to make any sudden movements or get shot. Ben, the dog, apparently attacked one of the prisoners and got shot. As Deputy Richardson said, the dog was alerted because of the hostility at the time, and the escapees knew it. Ben acted to protect his handler, and the dog would have given his life. As a matter of fact, I've seen the dog with Denny before, and I know he would have taken more than one bullet if it appeared to him that he had to. Another account said Milton Wallace jumped out of the undergrowth and said, stop or I'll shoot you. That account sounds like bullshit, since if he had done that, they could have probably grabbed him. Or shot him. Still another account said police found two sleeping bags and a voice came out of the undergrowth saying, drop or I'll shoot. The police dropped to the ground and Ben went after the men and got shot. Police didn't return fire because the woods were so dense and there were other searchers nearby. No one saw what really happened, if Ben really attacked Arnold or Milton or not. But in a quote from the Bangor Daily News, the sounds of the dog chewing on the escapee could be heard by the law enforcement officers, as could the animal's howl of pain when he was shot by one of the men. Don't worry, Ben was shot, but he did not die. He was a very good dog. Good boy. At the time he was shot, Ben was a seven-year-old German shepherd. He had won two awards at his training camp. Deputy Richardson said, he's one of the best all-around working canines in the area. (laughs) An excellent dog. The dedication he would exhibit to his master was immeasurable. He'd give his heart and soul for Denny. Timothy Richardson also had a dog named Cheetah. And Timothy Richardson was a sheriff's deputy. He said, it's a situation where you find yourself in a very emotional, very concerned state when you've given everything to your dog and your dog is going to give everything back to you. And that's the way it was with Ben. It's like a member of the family being injured. Denny was very upset and rightfully so. It hurt the other dog handlers at the scene as well. It was a very traumatic experience because we know the same thing could happen to us. The other dog handlers on the scene that day included Penobscot County Deputy Pat Murray and his dog Angie, Penobscot County Lieutenant Carl Andrews and his dog Buck, and the game warden Bill Allen and his dog Satan. It's Mm. like, what the hell? Satan? Why? The search was centered on a triangular area between Moody Mountain and Muzzy Ridge Roads. State Police Spokesman Richard Moore said a search of the entire area, which was as complete as possible because of the undergrowth, has not been completed. But roadblocks are being maintained and residences are being searched. As long as they believe they're still in there, they'll keep looking. Reporters asked if it was wise to cut back the search team to 40. As I said, there had been about 150. He said, we feel the present concentration of police in the area will keep the prisoners from moving any great distance. On Sunday, Public Safety Commissioner Arthur Stilfen said, we had one officer who thought he possibly saw something, but at this time we have had one hot trail and it's petered out. For the present time, fresh footprints are on the ground in the area we believe them to be. Odds are they are within that triangle like I said, between Moody Mountain and Muzzy Ridge Road. As time goes by, if we go into a second night, it's going to be difficult to hold them in that several square mile area. On Sunday night, August 2nd, a person in Searsmont reported that someone had tried to break into their home, but their dog scared the would-be burglar away. Monday morning, August 3rd, dawned hot and muggy. Police armed with shotguns patrolled the area and searched the swampy woods. 
State Police Lieutenant Roger Drake told the Bangor Daily News that footprints were found the day before that had groundwater in them, meaning they were fairly fresh. Another trooper commented, if they're living on raspberries, they're hurting. Lieutenant Drake said, it was awful dark and foggy last night. They could have crossed the road last night, but then it's hard to get through the woods at night without running into trees and making a lot of noise. They probably didn't panic and laid still Saturday. We could have walked right over them if they laid under the brush and we wouldn't have known it. That's why they need the dogs. On Tuesday, August 4th, it was reported that Ben, the canine officer, would be returning home from the doggy hospital. The Maine State Police said it was the first documented instance of a police dog being injured in the line of duty. They weren't sure if Ben could continue his work, though. And I tried to find out if he did, but it was it's really hard to research a police dog. Trooper Dennis McLellan said of his canine partner, the bullet went straight through and missed all the bones, but it damaged some of the nerves. How much they won't know for weeks. He might be 100% recovered and he might not. Time's the only thing that's going to tell us. Governor Joseph Brennan and Maine State Police officials expressed concern about Ben and promised that his medical treatment would be covered. It's like, I should hope so. Yeah, no shit. But for George Layton, a Brewer police officer and dog trainer, that wasn't enough. George trained the first two ever police dogs for the Maine State Police. The canine unit was only a year old at the time of his search, at the time of this search. Officer Layton said, Ben should definitely be recognized. I know the dog. He's a smart dog who, without a doubt, would have been willing to give his life for his handler. Trooper McLellan gave his account of Ben's shooting, which I take as the most accurate so far. Quote, we went into the woods in hopes to pick up a track, and we were able to pick up what I thought was a good track by the way the dog was working. I told the warden, meaning John Ford, that I was sure we were on the right trail. We found a place beneath a pine tree where the grass had been all laid down. I knew at that point that we were definitely near them. We went 30 more feet and this voice spoke and said, if you take one more step, I'm going to shoot you. We both heard him and we both stopped. We couldn't see well at first because the thicket was so dense. When we finally did see him, he was right in front of us pointing a rifle our way. The dog was less than 10 feet away from the guy and I was about 15 feet away. I kept waiting for the sting. I was sure that one of us was going to get shot. The dog wanted to bite the guy right from the beginning. When the guy spoke, the dog went bananas, snapping and snarling. He knew that that was the man he was supposed to get. The guy just stood there and kept the rifle right on me. I didn't dare reach for my holster because he told me not to move. He stood there looking at us, And finally, I knew he was trying to make a decision on whether it was going to be the dog or me. You could see it in his face. So I let the dog go. His first shot hit the dog and he's fired a second shot at me. Dennis McClellan lay face down until he heard the sounds of who he later found out was Milton Wallace running away into the woods. He had only seen the beginning of Ben's attack. He said Ben's intention was to bite the man and bring him down. No doubt he could have held him if he hadn't been shot. I know because the guy hollered before the shot came off. The way he tells it, the timeline is confusing, but I believe what happened is Milton was pointing the gun at Dennis and John Ford and Ben. Dennis let Ben go. Dennis and John Ford hit the ground and then the dog attacked. Dennis said, although he was armed with his 357 Magnum, the woods were so thick he was afraid if he fired after Milton, he might hit another searcher. He said of Ben, I knew that either the dog or I was going to get a bullet. I didn't spend those years training him to watch him get shot, but I did train him to save lives and I'm convinced he saved mine. 
Almost three weeks after the men escaped, the search was still going on. In Searsmont, the townspeople were getting nervous. Jeff Lord, owner of the Fraternity Village store on Route 131, told the Bangor Daily News, it has been more confusing than anything. In a small town, you get a different version of every story. I have mixed emotions on the whole thing. In one way, it's pretty exciting. And in other ways, I've been bored by the whole thing. There's a lot of tension in town. One woman came in with a 32 pistol in her hand. She unloaded it at the door. One thing for sure is my ammunition sales have picked up. I'm not worried here because we're in the center of town. I don't think they'll be coming in this direction. About the search, Jeff Lord said, I think they might have a hard time finding them. These are very dense woods and thick swamps. Have you ever been to the Fraternity Village store? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's on Route 131. Linda Bartlett, who lived in a trailer, and I want to say that I think almost every single person in this, my whole episode, maybe with the exception of like one person lives in a trailer. Or mobile home, as we politically correctly call it. Linda Bartlett, who lived in a trailer on Muzzy Ridge Road, had moved out and was staying with family until the escaped prisoners were caught. She said, I'm terrified. I'm not going back until they are captured. She was worried that someone had broken into her home while she and her family were at church. When we left, I locked both doors. There was no doubt about it. When we got back, the outside storm door was locked, but the inside door was unlocked. That gave me the heebie-jeebies, so we cleared out. Mm. She told the BDN that her father, where she was staying, had several rifles in the house and a pistol in the car. Tessa Lopada lived on Muzzy Ridge Road. She heard the police dogs throughout the day. She said, we have a lot of weapons in the house. When we go out, we go in pairs. I feel fine during the day, but I keep the dogs out at night. I don't like the whole idea because my privacy is threatened. We have horses, but don't dare go riding. I'm more concerned for the safety of my daughter. She came here from California to have her baby because she thought it would be safe. I really don't think they're still out there. Or if they are, they don't know much about the woods. Charlotte Coro from Warren was camping near the search area. She said, it's very upsetting. It seems like they should be caught by now. We have to have protection. There is protection in the campground. And though she implied she had guns, she wouldn't come out and say it. I'm sure most of the people around there Mm. had guns. Francis Willis told the BDN he thought Arnold and Milton tried to steal his truck. The state police processed it for fingerprints. He said, I don't like it. We wouldn't be here if our children were home. Harvey King wasn't nervous at all. The state police command post was on his Moody Mountain Road property. He had two kids visiting from Massachusetts who thought it was exciting. Harvey said, it surprises me how much equipment they had. The size of it is hard to imagine. Out of all the Searsmont residents, I feel the safest. They were tracking with the dogs a few minutes ago and ran into some blueberry rakers. It surprises me that parents let their children rake with all this going on. And just so you know, blueberry raking was a common summer job. It probably still is for a lot Mm -hmm. of kids. Back then I was in high school. I was going into junior year. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends would do it for a few weeks to earn money. The age limit was much lower for other jobs. Mm-hmm. I think it was either 14 or it might have been. It, was, it might have been even lower. I'm sure that the reason they were raking is that the season is short. They need to harvest the berries. Yeah, they go, they go bad go within a week or two. I can remember, um, I only did this a couple times, getting a bus with the Russell kids at the and a bunch of other kids at the Dunkin' Donuts on Western Avenue in Augusta to go up to, I think it was up to Cherryfield or somewhere to rake. 
I only did it a couple of times because Oof. it was a lot, was long, long day for not, yeah. you got paid, you got paid by the pint or whatever. <laughs> and um, It was miserable, Ugh. but I know it was before I was working. So I was probably 13 yeah. or 14. It seemed most. like kids were in their early teens. By now, the search team had bulked back up to 90 people and 18 dogs. State police spokesman Richard Moore said, we plan on making a big sweep through the whole area. It could take five hours. The heavy dew helped the sniffer dogs. Apparently, it made the scent stronger for them, but the heat and humidity was wearing down both dogs and humans. Sometime between 5 and 6 p.m. on Wednesday, August 6, three weeks after they escaped, Arnold Nash and Milton Wallace were captured in Morrill, which is just north of Searsmont. The Central May Morning Sentinel headline read, Lawmen capture two cons after 22-day manhunt. The Lewiston Daily Sun's headline read, Escapees Caught After Manhunt Ends. But the Bedford Journal Tribune and the Bangor Daily News had it right. Their headlines said, respectively, Tracking Dog Leads Police to Escapees and Dog Given Credit for Capture of Prison Escapees and Morrill. Mm. Nice. Yes, of course, it was the dogs who were the heroes. Mm -hmm. Specifically, the hero was a German shepherd named Skipper. Skipper was paired with State Trooper Dennis Hayden. Maine State Police Captain Ronald LaMontagne said, without the help of the dog, I don't see how any number of men could have been able to capture anybody in the woods as thick as those. No amount of manpower could have been enough to affect the arrest without the dogs. That was a very awkward way of saying that. This is how it went down. Dwayne Butler, who lived on Higgins Road in Morrill, got home from work about 4.15 on Wednesday. He noticed that someone had left some bacon on the counter as if they were preparing to cook it. He looked through the house and when he checked his refrigerator, he saw some chicken was missing. One of the first police to arrive was Chief Deputy Sheriff John Rains Frat. He noticed clothes strewn on the lawn next to Dwayne's house. They looked like the clothes that Arnold and Milton had last been seen in. Dwayne told the police he was missing a BB gun and a blaze orange hunting vest. Connie Butler, Dwayne's wife, said, We must have come in the front door as they went out the back. There was a cigarette still lit in the bedroom. The ash wasn't very long. The guys left two shirts and the dogs got the scent from them. Deputy Renz Frett said, so we took the wet clothing and placed it on the lawn so Skip could get the scent. Game warden John Ford accompanied Skipper and Dennis Hayden. The three had been teaming up since the previous weekend. Dennis Hayden told the BDN, with Bangor Daily News, Skip got the scent from the clothes and went off like a shot. It was really hard to track because it was raining so damn hard. We went about a mile and a half into the woods. There were all kinds of alders and junipers. It was really thick. The dog gave an indication that they were somewhere around, so I told John to get his gun ready. There was a raincoat on a pine tree, just like the one they had set up in the Searsmont area. So John went to one side and I went to the other. We were walking on juniper pine needles or something. Whatever it was, it was like walking on a sponge. They never heard us. As far as what we yelled at them, there's no way you can print what we told them. But they heard us and they were convinced we meant business. I wasn't going to let the dog, the warden, or myself get shot. No way. We knew they were capable of violence by what they had done Saturday. We gave them a direct order and they responded. That's pretty much what we did. It was about time. Luck had been on their side all this time. Now it was with us. When we came upon them, they were just lying there, relaxed. There was a gun. I think it was a 22. I think it was wrapped in plastic. 
Wallace said he'd done it so it wouldn't bind up in the rain. I'm not sure whether the gun was loaded or not, but Wallace had ammo in his pocket. He was starting to build up his supplies, you could tell, because it looked like most of the gear was new. Despite three weeks in the woods, Trooper Hayden said, I didn't think they looked all that bad. They had a full beard, one of those fuzzy ones like a young kid would have. Hmm. I'm just glad the canine found him. This was a new program, and he proved it works. Skipper had the scent on Saturday. He was the first to pick it up. He's done a super job these four days. Dennis Hayden told United Press International, it was a real tough track, and we were an hour at least behind the guys. That makes it a real tough, tough track. I saw a rain jacket or something like that looped over the branches of a pine tree for a tent type thing to keep them dry. They were lying under there. I saw one of their heads move. Myself and Warden Ford started screaming at them to give it up or we were going to smoke them. I think they felt we meant it and we did. They had a bunch of stuff with them in tote bags and stuff. And they just changed their clothes, so they didn't look too bad. They looked in pretty good health. They were kind of upset, though, when we caught them. But they just kept saying, okay, okay, when we told them to stand still, because they were afraid we were going to blow them away. The previous Saturday, Skipper had picked up on the trail of the convicts. But Dennis Hayden said, Skipper just collapsed from the heat that day. And another dog went in ahead. That dog named Ben got shot. He'll be okay as far as living, but I don't know whether they'll ever be able to use him again for tracking. Richard Moore, state police spokesman, said, Hayden arrived at the scene at 5.42 p.m. Skipper led the men to the scent at the back of the house, through a wooded area, and across a bog. They went about a mile or so and apprehended both prisoners at their campsite. It was a total surprise for the prisoners. They offered no resistance. Connie Butler said, they looked really grubby and they both had beards. We didn't go outside when they brought them out of the woods. We stayed inside and looked at them through the window. As soon as we got home, we saw somebody had been there and we thought this just might be them because they'd been in the area. We didn't have any guns or anything to protect us. They took some food and some booze in a coat. They didn't get much else. My husband, Dwayne, went across the street and called state police. I would have, like, ran out of the house. I know, no shit. The day after Arnold Nash and Milton Wallace were taken back into custody, quote, I'm going to swear out a warrant charging the two prisoners with escape, prison warden Paul Vestal vowed. The maximum sentence for prison escape in 1981 was five years. The two would also be charged with the crimes they committed while they were on the run. Both of the escapees would have been released within two years of that escape. When asked about the cost to the taxpayers, all the overtime for the guards and police, Paul Vestal said the prison budget would probably cover it. A lot of prison staff worked without pay for the last three weeks. All the men out in the field did not get paid. Some volunteered, end quote. Five inmates had escaped at that time under Paul Vestal's tenure, but he said it was really only three escapes because two of them were pairs of inmates. And in the other two instances, the scapees were caught within 48 hours. All of them had walked away from minimum security details. Despite the criticism about having guards with no guns watching the work details, he pointed out that no other prison in the country has armed guards covering their minimum security work details. Warden Vestal said, you cannot look inside a man's head to see what he will do, but the internal mechanism should not penalize everyone else because these two took off and violated the trust placed in them. <laughs> when asked about how the other prisoners felt about the escape, Warden Vestal said, it's hard to say what the attitude is. Some of the protective custody prisoners know that there is going to be more control now. 
there was more heat on the lifers. The Corrections Bureau decided they were going to change the color of the prison uniforms for the inmates on work detail. They said they would be wearing brightly colored overalls from then on. They were wearing some kind of denim clothes before that. Donald Allen, director of the Corrections Bureau, said, One of the changes made as a result of this, in addition to scrutinizing our classification system, is to put a distinctive type of clothing on these people, meaning they wouldn't wear anything but coveralls of a bright color. I tried to find out what they wore now, and I thought it was orange, but any pictures I find keep showing them wearing blue now, Mm. so I don't know. I think they were orange, though. The Corrections Bureau also conducted an investigation into the escape, but they found that the prison wasn't at fault. Donald Allen said, Our inquiry thus far has indicated to us that we use the best classification and diagnostic tools available to us. The performance of the inmates, the length of time remaining, the recommendations of staff and the utilization of those classification tools all indicated that they should be minimum security inmates. But they weren't. They were on a minimum security detail. I know, like I said, there's a lot of paradoxes in this story. As police questioned Arnold Nash and Milton Wallace, they came up with a timeline and a map where the two went on their three-week adventure. The two escaped inmates spent the first three days, July 15th to 18th, in the Thomaston Union area. They were at Alfred Lake on Sunday, July 19th. The rest of the time, they hopped around West Rockport, Hope, Appleton, Searsmont, and Morrow. The police weren't able to find out if the two were going anywhere in particular, or if they had any plan for what they were going to do after gaining their freedom. State Police Captain Renaud Lamontagne told the Central May Morning Sentinel, from all indications, they were in no hurry to go anywhere. Paul Vestal, the prison warden, said the two prisoners were very good friends. They both were living in the honor storm at Thomaston Prison and worked during the day on the minimum security detail at the Baldock Unit in South Warren. As I said, they were both very close to the ends of their sentences. Paul Vestal said, they were model prisoners, and yet you never know. I had a guy once who had four hours, four hours to go, and he took off. Mm. Of course, we got him back, and he went back inside for the escape. When asked if maybe the two wanted to stay in prison, the warden said, it certainly looks that way, doesn't it? Less than a week later, the two men were arraigned for the escape charges only. They would face the other charges later. The judge set bail at $10,000 each, just in case they were released before the court action on the escape or other charges. A couple weeks after that, they were indicted on a bunch of charges each. Wallace faced criminal threatening with a dangerous weapon, cruelty to animals, three burglaries and two thefts, and a possession of a firearm by a felon. Arnold got two burglaries and two thefts. Also that November, the two prisoners were indicted on various other charges racked up during their spree the previous summer. Another thing that happened right about that time is the Maine State Prison decided to add three dogs to their security staff. The article did not say the dogs' names. Mm which I was not too happy about. But one was a bloodhound and the other two were described as black and tan bloodhound mixes. Paul Vestal said he had more experience with bloodhounds, which is why they picked that breed. They claimed getting the dogs had nothing to do with the breakout and search, but I'm dubious about that. And I think, I think frankly, it'd be better off if all the guards were just dogs. Plus the prisoners would have more fun. On January 6, 1982, there was a letter to the editor in the Bangor Daily News. To the editor, in your December 30th edition, there was an article on Arnold Nash and Milton Wallace, the two escapees who were granted a change of venue for their upcoming trial. The change of venue is perhaps understandable, but the unbelievable part of the article was 
where both attorney James Brennan and attorney Robert Lane requested that the court provide up to $100 for suitable clothing for the inmates' court appearances and the fact that Justice William McCarthy granted this request. Apparently, all three of these gentlemen are ignorant of the fact that the main state prison is supplied with a large selection of suits and other men's articles loaned to inmates such as Nash and Wallace for just such purposes as going to court. Before officials of our judicial system arbitrarily give away our hard-earned tax dollars, they should check into such matters with the proper prison authorities, as both lawyers visit their clients at the prison anyway. Perhaps if I ever go to court, I'll petition for a new set of clothes. After all, I could always sell them to pay my fine. And it was signed Stephen J. Wood Guard, Main State Prison. Hmm. Yes, their lawyers had asked for a change of venue, which they got. And they were being tried together. And they also asked for $100 each. And they got that too. At the end of September 1982, Arnold Nash and Milton Wallace pled guilty to all the charges against them. The newspapers reported that they were given, quote, stiff sentences. Arnold got two years. He had already completed his original four-year sentence the previous January. The articles then didn't say if he was going to be granted time served because he stayed in prison in the intervening months. Uh, Milton got five years. So they kept calling him stiff sentences, but one was two years and one was five years. Mm. So it didn't seem that stiff. And Arnold's time served was taken off because he was out of prison by the end of 1983. Mm -hmm. And I know this because in January, 1984, Arnold was arrested for burglary and firing a gun at police. On the afternoon of Thursday, January 12, 1984, the Hancock County Sheriff's Department got a phone call from Gerald Keefe in Franklin. Someone had broken into his home and a shotgun and a pair of boots were missing. When the sheriff's deputies got to the house, which was heated, there was still snow on the floor where the burglar had come in, indicating that he had been there only a short while before Gerald got home. The burglar also left behind some warm weather type shoes. They didn't say what type, they just said summer shoes. There were tracks in the snow leading from Gerald's house in Hog Bay and across Route 200 going into the woods. As the deputies followed the tracks, they found a blanket and other items that had come from the house. It was getting dark as they entered the woods. They heard someone stirring in the bushes and smelled cigarette smoke. When the police called out, a voice answered telling them to leave him alone. When police told him to come out, he shot at them. Sheriff William Clark told the Bangor Daily News, They couldn't see the muzzle flash due to the thickness of the bushes, but they both thought they could hear a shell going by them. At least one of the deputies fired back, then they both retreated and called for backup. Meanwhile, the guy ran away, apparently without shoes on. When backup arrived, they continued looking for the burglar. There were 11 officers from the sheriff's department and four state troopers. They set a roadblock up on Route 200. Someone driving by told police they saw a guy running down the road in stocking feet. Police were concerned that since the guy was armed and had no shoes, that he would try to break into someone's home to get warm. The weather was below zero Fahrenheit. And for those outside the United States, zero Fahrenheit is about negative 18 degrees Celsius. They didn't want a hostage situation to occur. So they started warning people who lived in the area to lock their doors. State Police Sergeant Robert Bragg was just going back to his cruiser after knocking on someone's door to warn them. He saw a guy walking along the road, no shoes on, soaking wet from the waist down. He was unarmed. Sheriff Clark said he offered no resistance. 
Arnold was lucky. He hadn't gotten frostbite from his shoeless foray. Police searched the woods and found a campsite with some items belonging to Gerald Keefe and some other items that might have belonged to the victim of a burglary that happened the week before. Sheriff Clark said, We believe he's been camping out in the area a couple of days and maybe since before the snowstorm. We theorize he wasn't being chased from the burglary scene, that he went to his campsite on his own. The police thought Arnold had been in his sleeping bag when the police came upon him. That's why I don't think he had boots on, Sheriff Clark said. Mm. So he wasn't like, he didn't know the cops were after him until they showed up. Arnold's burglary case progressed quickly. By April 1984, a jury had been selected for his trial. But he ended up pleading guilty to burglary and got three years in prison, plus six months to a second count of theft, which was to be served concurrently. He served less than two years, though, because in May of 1986, Arnold Nash was arrested and charged in Mm. two burglaries, one in Ellsworth and one in Sullivan. In August 1986, Arnold pled guilty to two counts of burglary and got three years in prison and two counts of theft for which he got six months to be served concurrently. And then he got out again (laughs) on Friday, March 8th, 1991, police responded to a call from relatives of 58-year-old Wilford Gibo, who lived in North Sullivan. Wilford's son and daughter-in-law had come to visit Wilford at his rented log cabin on Hicks Road, also known as Fire Road 12. The door was locked, so they knocked, but no one answered. When police entered the four-room cabin, they found Wilford lying on the floor dead and the wood stove, which was the only source of heat, was cold. Police quickly reported the death as suspicious, but that's all they would say about it. Wilford, a disabled veteran of the Korean War and originally from New Bedford, Massachusetts, lived by himself, but he often had people visit. He was the father of three sons and one daughter and had four grandchildren and a large extended family. His funeral was in Ellsworth, at a funeral home on Main Street, and it was officiated by Father Peter Gorham mm. of St. Joseph's Catholic Church, the same church and priest from our sister Nikki's wedding. Let's just hope he didn't fucking sing. I'm telling you, it's six degrees of Maine separation. I know. But also, it, yes, he sang and sang and sang. And yes, when I worked at, it was a few years later, I was back in Portland. This girl I worked with was like, oh, I'm going to drive back to my parents' in Ellsworth for Christmas. We always go to midnight mass. I don't really like it because the priest sings. She's like, the priest likes to sing and he sings a really long time. And I said, I know that. Yeah, priest. Yeah. Yeah. No offense. It's, it's even longer if you're standing there in a bridesmaid's dress. Uh, yeah, nice voice. Hmm. Anyway, Wilford was buried at the main veterans cemetery in Augusta. Meanwhile, the newspapers were reporting that the police had a suspect, but they weren't going to name him. They said Wilford had a housemate, another guy, up to a few months before his death, but he had been cleared. Because the killing took place outside of Portland or Bangor, Maine State Police took over the case. Steve McCausland, he must have just started around then because that other guy, Moore, was before. Right. And back then he was called the public information officer for the state police, told media that police didn't want to release the cause of death or the name of the suspect until an arrest was made. But Steve did say about the suspect, we believe he left Bangor Friday. And state police believe the suspect was out of state. But by March 14th, almost a week after the killing, his name was released. And I'll bet you'd be surprised to know that police issued an all points bulletin for Arnold Freeman Nash. No. Also used the names Arnold Freeman and Arnold Grindle. 
<laughs> I wonder how people pick their aliases. I know. You ever think of that? Arnold was described as a worm digger and a laborer. He was believed to have his hair cut in a Mohawk style, and the public was warned that he was armed and dangerous. Arnold was last seen at the bus station in Bangor the morning after Wilfred's body was found. However, as state police detective Barry Schumann said in a press conference, we do not know at this time whether he got on board the bus. Police thought he was headed for Boston, but Steve McCausland said, frankly, he could be anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Although the bus was bound for Boston, it stopped numerous times at towns in Maine and New Hampshire on the way. And I know because I've been on that. Oh, yeah. Police also released Wilford Gibo's cause of death, which was blunt force trauma to the head. Initial reports said he was beat beyond recognition, but later reports said that wasn't true. Although police had a weapon, they wouldn't share what it was. Detective Schumann said, we do have a motive, but we're not going to release it at this time. Mm. Police said that Arnold Nash lived next door to Wilford Gibo and the two knew each other. Arnold's parents also lived on the same road and told police they hadn't seen Arnold since Saturday. Arnold was not in Boston. He probably didn't even leave Maine or even Hancock County. On Friday, March 22nd, two weeks after Wilfred's body was discovered, Arnold Nash was arrested in Bucksport. He'd been hitchhiking on Route 1. He was walking near the Dunkin' Donuts when Sergeant Charles Rommel of the Maine Marine Patrol noticed him and called Bucksport Police. Officer Jay DeRost of the Bucksport Police showed up and asked Arnold for his ID. Officer DeRose said he had no ID. He gave us a false name and date of birth, and he said he lived in Ellsworth. I had seen him years ago when I worked for the sheriff's office, and I was 98% sure it was him. It's like I said on a previous show, it's a small, Maine is a small place. It is. Officer DeRose radioed for help, and the state police dispatcher in Orono described Arnold's tattoos. Arnold was taken to the Bucksport Police Department, where he was questioned by Maine State Police, arrested and charged with murder. State Police Sergeant Barry Schumann said that there had been several reported sightings of Arnold in Bangor that week. It's possible he could have been here all the time. Police said Arnold was thought to be heading to Bar Harbor. And Bucksport would be on the way to Ellsworth and Bar Harbor from Bangor if you're going down Route 1A on the west side of Penobscot River through Hamden and Winterport, and then then you go over east. Right. The Monday after his arrest, Arnold Nash was arraigned in 5th District Court on the murder charge. He was ordered held without bail by Judge Bernard Staples. Arnold's lawyer was Anthony Beardsley. He told the Bangor Daily News, I was just appointed this morning. It's really too early to make a comment. Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Helm argued against bail. He told the court, given the nature of the case and the fact that he made himself unavailable for about two weeks while police were looking for him, would indicate he is not a particularly good bail risk. Mm -hmm. Arnold Nash was ultimately denied bail, even though his lawyer, Anthony Beardsley, argued that he hadn't been convicted of a crime for five years. (laughs) The poor guy getting stuck with him. The police affidavit had finally been released, so more information came out. According to the affidavit, Arnold's friend Charles Sinclair said that he and Arnold were drinking the night of March 7th. Arnold knew that his neighbor, Wilfred, had recently gotten his benefit checks, which totaled about $1,400, worth about $3,000 in today's money. Wilfred was known to carry large amounts of cash. Charles said that Arnold proposed the two burgle Wilfred's house. Charles told Arnold, no thanks. The medical examiner estimated that Wilfred had been killed between 6 p.m. March 7th and 11 a.m. March 8th. And I would guess 11 is when the body was discovered, so that was just their window. He probably was killed the night before. 
When police found his body on March 8th, Wilford was partially covered by a blanket and there were pieces of firewood near his head that had his blood on them. Arnold Nash lived in a camper about 50 yards from Wilford's cabin. Arnold also used a lean-to nearby to store some of his stuff, which was about 200 yards from the cabin. Charles Sinclair told police that he'd found some of Wilford's belongings, including a checkbook with his name on it, in the lean-to. Also hidden in the lean-to was a 22 caliber revolver. Charles told the police that Arnold had stolen the gun from Wilford another time when he was in the cabin. On March 7th, the day of or before his death, Wilford reported his 22 caliber handgun missing to the Hancock County Sheriff's Department. Charles is quite the font of information. Mm-hmm. Jackie Pinkham of Ellsworth told police that Arnold had given her $50 to give him a ride to the Bangor Greyhound Station on March 8th. And Bangor is about 30 miles north of Ellsworth. A month later, Arnold was indicted on charges of murder. He would stay at the Hancock County Jail until his trial. A year after that, in April 1992, Arnold Nash pled guilty in front of Justice Robert L. Brown in Hancock County Superior Court. It came out during this court hearing that some of the other items Arnold had at Wilford's were clothing and cubic zirconia rings, along Mm. with a big wad of money that Jackie Pinkham, his ride to Bangor, said he tried to conceal. Hmm. Jackie told police that Arnold was closed-mouthed about where he was going. He said he didn't want anyone to know his plans. But police found out that Arnold had stayed at the Brewer Motor Inn using the name Rodney Blair that night. After that, he wasn't seen much until his arrest. Arnold's sentencing hearing was on May 29, 1992. Judge Brown sentenced Arnold based on a plea agreement in which Arnold was to serve no more than 45 years in prison for the murder of Wilford Gibo. Arnold's lawyers, Pat Larson and Julio DeSanctis III, argued for a lesser sentence, but the judge gave Arnold the maximum 45 years with a robbery conviction to run concurrently. Judge Brown told Arnold that pure greed led him to kill Mm. Wilford. He said, he was your neighbor and acquaintance. He had no reason to suspect he was in danger. So Arnold went back to prison. In 2002, Thomaston Prison closed. The prison had been there for 178 years. The buildings weren't all that old, but they were old. The prison was outdated and run down. A new prison had been built in Warren, 10 or 11 miles away, and the old prison was raised to the ground. It took years to get used to driving into Thomaston and not seeing the looming walls of the prison overshadowing the town, which is otherwise a picturesque Mm -hmm. village. When the prison was empty, But before it was torn down, the state gave tours. One Saturday, my ex-husband Gordon and I drove up to Thomaston to go on the tour. He was your husband at the time. Yes. The line was hundreds of people. I took a bunch of photos, but I don't know where they are. That pisses me off. Yeah. But, you know, people were fascinated by it. Yeah. People for a few days. We talked Um, about it a little too in our Dennis Larson episode. Because remember, he was there. He yep. and he jumped out the window or oh yes, that's right. The rock quarry. It's pretty cool that rock quarry. Mm-hmm. Now when you drive into town and you look to your right, it's just a grassy green field. Fun oh. fact, one of my last stories at Main Biz, I did a story on how there have been several development proposals for that field and they keep getting rejected by the townspeople well they must have filled in like there was like this big rock wall and stuff and there was like a baseball field they filled it in yeah it's a park it's a big park but they had some development proposals for housing at one of the corners and stuff and people voted against it it's a giant green Mm -hmm. field and towards the back there's a beautiful view over the river yes towards south thomaston and stuff 
Mm. You can Google Thomaston Maureen Milliken main biz and read the Ooh. story. I even have a timeline with like showing the prison, the whole prison timeline and everything. My boss hated the whole story. Mm, yeah. I'm sure thought, he did. That was a shitty story. But, but people like the prison. Other people like. Arnold went to Warren with the rest of the prisoners, but in 2018, Arnold was in the Mountain View Correctional Facility in Charleston. Mountain View Prison has been both a juvenile prison and a minimum security adult prison. In recent years, it served as a minimum security prison for adults. On September 14th, 2018, the newspapers reported that Arnold Nash, convicted murderer, had, quote, walked away from Charleston Prison. Department of Public Safety spokesman Steve McCausland said, He's dangerous. He's a career criminal and residents in the greater Charleston area need to be aware, be vigilant and take extra precautions. No details were released as to how Arnold escaped. They only said the last time he had been seen was at 8.20 p.m. on Thursday, September 13th. Charleston, like the area where Arnold and his fellow escaping Milton Wallace spent 22 days, almost 40 years before, is rural, farms and woods. But Arnold was alone and he was at that time 65 years old. He was also supposed to be released in a little over a year, December 2019. Yes, he got a 45-year prison sentence back in 1992, but he had good time taking off his sentence, 18 years worth. On Monday, September 17th, Joseph Fitzpatrick, commissioner of the Maine Department of Corrections, had a press conference in which he asked the public for help in finding Arnold F. Nash. The commissioner wouldn't explain exactly how Arnold escaped. He said that Arnold was in minimum security because he was in a pre-release program, which is kind of ironic since Steve McCausland had just said he was dangerous, but whatever. No Fitzpatrick said, we have not located Mr. Nash. The search is ongoing in that area, and we are currently working intelligence we have related to community contacts Mr. Nash may have had in the past. It's like you kind of mentioned a few minutes ago, too, because I've driven by there a lot. It's an area west of Bangor. And there's like nothing there. No, there's and nothing it's kind there. of ironic. It's very that rural. The jail itself, you come up, it's you got a beautiful it. view to yes. the west. It's on the top. And it's it's, it, you figure these poor guys are there in prison, and it's got this beautiful view to the yeah. west of the mountains and everything. But there's but there home. is nothing. Arnold had been at Mountain View for six months, and before that, he'd been in another minimum security prison for six months, Down East Correctional Center in Machiasport. Mm. Naturally, people had questions about why a convicted murderer was in a minimum security prison. The commissioner said, I can tell you as someone who has been in corrections for 25 years, if you look at the literature and the correctional research and take someone who has a significantly long sentence like Mr. Nash and you keep them in what we would call behind the wall or in a secure facility right up to the day they walk out the door, the risk to the community is much greater than if you take at the end of their sentence at least two to four years to try to reacclimate them to the community. And I understand what he's saying, but can he just say it like I know look, he has to be he has to be ready to get out. The way the guy talks. Joe said that Arnold had only two minor infractions his whole sentence and he was never violent or aggressive. Mr. Nash was being treated as any other individual would have been treated. If you look at the crime, I think it was horrific. At the same time, part of the mission of the Department of Corrections is to, to the best of our ability, mitigate the risks before we return people to the community. However, since Arnold had a violent history and was a convicted murderer, he should be considered dangerous, the commissioner told the press. Okay, that's helpful. Where 
interviewing people now who might have spent time with him, who might have been cellmates with him, individuals who might have had communications with him in the community. Commissioner Fitzpatrick also said of Arnold, he had spent most of his life incarcerated and whether on some level Mr. Nash was in fact not looking to get out. Charleston resident Terry Lynn Hall, who was a member of the Board of Selectmen, said the prison had, quote, limited mishaps in its almost 40 years of operation. She said, I have spoken to numerous families in town. Everyone is just taking extra precautions, I think, but police are being as forthright as they can. People are nervous, yes, but the cooperation level that we've seen in town has been encouraging. And this is Rebecca here. I have to beg to differ about the forthrightness thing since no one would even say how he escaped. Right. They wouldn't say much about him at all. Paul Davis, the state senator who represented the district, including Charleston, said he hadn't heard any complaints from the constituents, and he was sure Arnold Nash would be caught soon. He said, but he is a murderer. People still need to be cautious. I'd lock the doors at night. Mm -hmm. Reporters asked Commissioner Fitzpatrick if the escape was a result of a failure by staff or administration at Mountain View, but he didn't think so. Oh, well, then how does the fucking guy escape? Something failed if a prisoner escapes. I know. And then he said, information from the public is very important. Even if people don't think it's significant, they should call. The description of Arnold hadn't changed a lot, except he was a little heavier, a little grayer, and now he had a fish symbol tattoo with the word Christ Mm. added to the love and mom tab. The next day, the day after the press conference, September 18, 2018, Arnold Nash was caught by Piscataquis County Sheriff's Deputy Michael Gould. Arnold was walking on Route 15 towards the Correctional Center, which is on Route 15. He was about 12 miles away from the prison. Headlines read that police caught Arnold Nash, which I guess is technically true. Mm-hmm. Piscataquis County Sheriff Robert Young told reporters that Arnold wasn't trying to run, but he wasn't trying to be caught. And that arrest was a result of Deputy Gould, quote, being in the right place at the right time. But Arnold hadn't eaten in days, and I would bet that he was on his way back to the prison to turn Mm -hmm. himself in. Even the arresting deputy, Michael Gould, told WGME that Arnold was ready to give up, and he believed that Arnold escaped just to add more time to his sentence because he considered prison home. The last news I could find about Arnold before the news of his death in 2022 was that a grand jury indicted him in September of 2019. And I'm assuming based on his past actions that he pled guilty and was sentenced accordingly, though I couldn't find any information about the conviction or trial. His fellow escapee back in 1981, Milton Wallace, died in prison on December 23rd, 2021. The two prisoners escape in 1981 has been called the Moody Mountain Manhunt. It's interesting the difference between that escape and the one in 2018, where there didn't even seem to be much of an effort to find him or even much news about his escape. Right. Uh, maybe part of it was because he was 65. And well, figured, and part of it is the news yeah, has changed. It's just different. And in 1981, he wasn't even a murderer yet. Yeah. And he was like, it was big news. Even Although Milton, his, Milton, yeah, Milton was. was yeah. One good thing that came out of the manhunt in 1981 was to underline the value of dogs in law enforcement. Hmm. And well, who knows how long they would have been yeah. on the run without the dogs. The dogs yeah. caught them. And by the way, if Officer McClellan and Ben sound familiar, it's because they were in episode 108. Ben was the one who discovered the clues at the murder site of Joyce McClain. Oh! And Officer McClellan. And that must I... have been one of his first 
his first oh, one yeah, was yeah. And that is my it's story. It's funny because his name sounded familiar, and I'm like, well, a lot of these state troopers, their name sounds familiar. And then, well, thank you. I, I thought his life was kind of sad, even and though I, he killed somebody. It sounds like he didn't function very well out of prison. No. He lived rough, and it sounded like it was miserable, rough living. I know. And like those, the two big escapes, the one with Milton and the one in 2018 it doesn't sound like he had a plan to go anywhere it's just like okay i'll escape long enough to be a nuisance and then i'll go back to prison and get more time i mean he may really have wanted to live in i think i don't know what it's like in that prison i think it used to be more well none of them are not charleston but and no prison i mean you're in prison but for some people i think they're okay it's routine it's structured Um, they're fed they're warm and i know that like people who are like real hardcore oh yeah they get three meals a day and they're but it's miserable to be there but i think it's more miserable to be in the fucking woods whether it's july right or below zero out not have an income and not have food and not have a social network Mm. and people to take care of you and shit and i'd like to know more about his childhood and upbringing and stuff that although his parents lived in sullivan and they could still be alive but who knows yeah i couldn't find much about him at all i tried to find out more about his murder victim and i couldn't find out yeah blame newspapers you know you know that was very interesting and i have a vague memory of the one in 2018 because charleston is halfway between bangor and where my book takes place, oh, and there's yeah. actually a scene of somebody driving somebody from the bus station in Bangor, my fake town on Seabeck Lake, and they pass that prison and have a discussion about ah. it. It's funny that I didn't really remember it, but I had taken a picture of it. I noticed his death. When I lived in Bangor, we used to drive up to Dover Foxcroft or And you drive Greenville. right by it. Yeah, yeah you drive right by it. And it's like, what a weird spot for a prison, I used to always think. Yeah, it's, but, it's a beautiful view, but it's in the middle of nowhere. That town is very small. All the towns around there are tiny. That's why if you escape, you're screwed. Yeah. Yeah, unless you have a plan. Um, so you have a negative Nellies? I do. Yay. I do. <laughs> My NNW is on a documentary on Hulu. It's called My Old School. The documentarian is John O'McLeod, a Scottish bloke. It's about something that happened when John O, and it's kind of a, that's a little bit of a spoiler because you don't find out till the end that John O's the documentarian because he's also one of the people. But when they were in high school or whatever it's called in Scotland, in the 90s, they had a very odd uh, fellow student named Brandon Lee. And <laughs> this is a t- little bit of a spoiler if you're a very obtuse person, but the documentary kind of plays it as a twist. But it's pretty obvious from the beginning that Brandon Lee was not high school age, but was an older fella. And one of the cool things about the documentary is that he agreed to an audio interview but would not be videoed so they got alan cumming one of my favorite actors to lip sync to the audio and i would have thought this was cheesy if i hadn't seen that marilyn monroe documentary that did that very effectively with people who have been interviewed about her i couldn't tell you know i hate it when you see a show that might look interesting but you can't tell from the description what it's about But the fact that it had a picture of Alan Cumming, 
and it said it was a documentary. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. Why don't I just get into yes, it? Yes, go down okay. Go down the list. Bad reenactments. I am not taking away any points. In fact, I am going to do the rare <gasps> add. Oh, I am okay. adding a point. So it's, it's, this is starting out with 11. Wow. Because they do what I'm really liking with documentaries is they do animation for the reenactments. And these ones are very clever yeah. and funny. They're not just depicting what happened. And in fact, you can get a lot of information about things just from the reenactments, like this one where they were on a trip to Tenerife and got in a fight with these guys. You can tell the guys were from England and hmm. these assholes, because one of them's wearing a big t-shirt that says England <laughs> and stuff like that. But I, I guess I like the, the animation was really good, really clever. I think reenactments like that have really brought documentaries yeah. up to a next level where yeah. they can do a lot more and say a lot more than just having people acting stuff out and when they use animation. It's almost less distracting than it's, having... It's, some it's, actor that doesn't look anything like it. it's to much me, it's, less distracting yeah. to me it's actually an ad now it's an added layer to the story yeah. rather than just some stupid depiction or something yeah. as with most of this documentary there's a lot of humor to them yeah. i don't know if scottish people in general are humorous joking type people but i find them lovely it's one of my favorite countries by visit there but this documentary, they certainly are, and it gives this whole tone to this documentary that's just very enjoyable. Narrative cliches, none that I can think of or took note of, so I'm not taking anything off. I did watch this twice, by the way, and mm. kind of semi-took notes both times. So racial gender obtuseness, no racial. In fact, well, the high school was it's pointed out by a couple of people quite white the students you know who are now adults in their 40s or whatever you would be if you went to high school back then a lot of them are people of color and stuff and i realized at the end when john o mcleod who's a person of color so these are probably his friends and stuff but they were they were also the people who were interacting with brandon lee yes so there's no no real racial obtuseness because there are many more people of color represented in this documentary than a normal documentary i will say there's gender obtuseness Sorry for the spoiler. Brandon was living with who he told people was his grandmother, and it turned out it was actually his mother. There's a segment at the end where there's a lot of the trope of the obsessive domineering mother pushing things. Yeah. And I don't buy it. I'll talk a little more about it later, but I don't buy it with this. And it annoys me that they got a lot of their information from that, apparently from tabloids like The Sun. Mm. And The Sun is notoriously, especially back then in the 90s, the worst of the tabloids. And you couldn't really trust a lot that was in it. It's like, that's where you're going to get your information on this front. Mm -hmm. I don't know that his mother was completely blameless, but he certainly managed to pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes I and it's not beyond the realm of possibility. He was also manipulating her. So, I, and I find that gender obtuseness, I feel like if it hadn't been a woman then. Yeah. So I'm taking away half a point, but since it started with 11, it's still at 10.5. Okay. Lack of good visuals, not taking away anything. Mm -hmm. The visuals are great, not only the animation, but the guy did a TV interview back after all this broke in the 90s, and they have some of that on there. They have a lot of 90s mm -hmm. photos and stuff. 
um, and references. The visuals are great. And I'm also, since there's no other really way, other place to put this, the biggest thing about the visuals is I said they have audio of the guy, but no video. So they have Alan Cumming sitting there kind of wearing a windbreaker and stuff at a desk lip syncing this guy's yeah. words and it's so good you forget he such a good job. you forget he's lip syncing his facial expressions everything his mannerisms everything about it but you do forget that he's lip syncing i know to this guy's words and so the the visuals are great it's a very visually interesting documentary all around it's not too frenetic like some are no. where they're throwing all sorts of stuff at you. The mix of different types of visuals is great. And at the end, when they do the credits, which are really great credits and worth just watching over and over, they have the live person and their animated yes. person. And then they have, because like they had actors doing voices for some of the animation yeah. for people who weren't on it. They show the school photos yeah. of the people like Lulu, the singer, who also sang my old school yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she was the i think she was the like nazi type um, yeah assistant. she was she was so yeah. they had her and stuff so they show school photos of the people who did the acting stuff too mm -hmm. missing pieces i'm taking off a point mm -hmm. i feel like there's stuff a timeline stuff and also exactly what happened stuff that's unclear yes. on one hand you can't have it all clear because he's an unreliable narrator yes. and the kids didn't know what was happening at the time but like the whole process of he went on this trip with these rich mean girls and then this one other young woman the friend who's in the thing and it's not really clear how that all happened yes. and i i got the impression especially after watching it twice that the girls knew he was a faker and did it on purpose to set him up but I had to really the second time I process more information about that. It's just very unclear about it all. And I know there are parts that are going to be unclear. Yeah, but it's, yeah, you wonder um, why he went. And But more just factual things, I'd like to know more about what the process is for getting into med school yes. in Scotland, because apparently he did this so he yes. could get to med school. So apparently in Scotland, my takeaway from this is that when you graduate from high school, which you do at 16 there, you go to med school like so you do go do you go to some college program and then i would assume it was pre-med and then you can't right you can assume whatever you want but as i, I used know. to say to reporters when i would ask them questions about their stories and they say well i don't know i assume i'm like yeah but the thing is i don't want your assumption about it i yes. want the documentary nice to explain yes, to me i agree apparently they have like two med schools in the whole country yeah. and thousands and thousands of people want to go to them. So it's impossible to get in. I hope the medical care in Scotland's awesome because of that, but that just needed some clarification. And also he, and again, this is an issue with him being an unreliable narrator and nobody else really knowing what happened, but he basically failed at med school twice. Yes. Like the second time he blames it on people having it out for him and all this, but that's his whole version of it. I don't believe him. It would have been nice for there have been somebody on there if there was anybody who could talk about what actually happened. Yes, yes. Like it was this big dream of his, the only dream. But there are things like that. Also, maybe a mental health expert to yes. talk about what this guy's problem was, because obviously he had one. Like he does the most complicated, life-changing difficult thing you can possibly do because he wants to go to med school so I he's know. gonna so pretend weird. he's a high school student 
And I know on one hand, the documentary, its point isn't to answer those questions, but basically to tell a story. But on the other hand, those missing pieces bothered me. Storytelling, I have some major issues, but also I think there were some great things about the storytelling. So I'm taking off a point for the major issues, but then adding a point for the good things. So it's a wash. Okay. So I'm not taking away any points, basically. Well, I didn't want to not punish it for the okay. storytelling issues but i also didn't don't make faces at me i can do what i want <laughs> the losing point is i think it falls apart a little at the end because he's an unreliable narrator yeah. yet there are things that are taken at face value he's very manipulative i really believe he manipulated his mother there's obviously memory issues i won't go into the detail because this is a good thing i don't want to spoil but there is a certain thing that people, every single person remembers about the high school musical. And then there's a video of it. And the way everybody remembers something happening is totally not what happened. So obviously people's memories are not great. So when one of the guys says, you know, cause he told people his mother was actually his grandmother. Oh yeah. He called her gran. That could be just 30 years later inferring that from your memory you know we've talked before there are things that you're sure that happened and didn't and maybe it's nuanced that you can infer he's an unreliable narrator and their memories aren't great about everything but i still think they just spend too much time on bashing the mother instead of acknowledging how what a manipulator he was and that he probably Mm -hmm. manipulated her as well i'd say the big twist that he's an adult, not a high school student, is pretty obvious from the start. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's supposed to be or not. But the good storytelling is having these people who knew him tell the story just works really well. Yeah. The way they do it works really well. The pairings, because some people are by themselves and some people, there's a pair of two friends yeah. or whatever. They play well off of each mm. other. So even though the twist that's coming up is obvious, the way the story's told, the way it unfolds is done very, very well. It must have taken a huge yes. amount of editing and thought mixed in with the animation. There is a twist about the video of the musical that changes the tone a little and gives it all a different layer, yeah. which I think is done well. And I think some of the missing piece type stuff that I had issues with and they'll never be able to answer because, as I keep saying, he's an unreliable yeah, narrator and stuff. Yeah. But I think that's also part of the storytelling. Part of the storytelling is we're never going to know all the answers. Yeah. And I do think like the different perspectives from the students now adults are well like the there's this kind of gentle black guy who was beat up and treated poorly in high school and the (laughs) interviewer asks this guy i think his name was steven how did you feel when you found out he wasn't the person you thought he was and steven says well what is a person i think his point was he was this person to me and it helped me and he was my good friend and stood up for me and stuff and i kind of liked that moment i thought that was a good moment some of the things like Brandon Lee, Brandon Lee, um, <laughs> Brian, his real name was, claiming that he got into the school because he mesmerized, because he can mesmerize <laughs> yes. people with his eyes and stuff. Yes. I, I think the point with <laughs> that is... In the cartoon. In the cartoon, their eyes go. But I think then the kind of point is we're never going to really know how he got in, but it also shows how 
the headmaster and stuff are easily manipulated yeah. by by stories of wealth and privilege yeah. and stuff. You know, and as I said, the storytelling, the animation is part of the storytelling. Even the end, ending credits are part of the storytelling. Yes. And it just really works in the tone of the whole thing is lighthearted. There's a lot yeah. of people laughing, a lot of joking around that's not annoying joking around but part no, of it's it, kind of nice because people are reminiscing kind right. of and like you would with your friends from middle right. school i high felt school. very like i wanted to be friends with yeah these. freshness i'm not taking off any points yeah. it's very fresh i mean i've heard similar about similar stories yeah. but i don't know that i've ever seen a documentary about them the way it's told is very fresh the animation even like i said the ending credits just the, the way the animation is like i could i could watch the scene where they go on that trip and it keeps showing them doing the macarena yeah, yeah. with the girls yeah. i mean it's just so funny repetitiveness things are repeated but it's for effect yeah like the him showing the macarena <laughs> it, you know the first time it's yeah yuck, he went and then it gets more the tone of it changes yes. and stuff so there's no unnecessary repetitiveness beating the drum i'm not taking any points i feel there's a little bit of drum beating aimed at the only thing i really had the issue with is the way the mother was treated and it's kind of sad because you can see from the news video when it happened at the time just the onslaught of press and stuff at her house and i felt it, it was kind of unfair to her and they i think they beat the drum a little too much on that but i'm not mm -hmm. taking any points away so that's a 9.5 I highly, highly recommend yeah, it. it was great. I've, I've watched it twice and will probably watch it again just because the second time I watched it, I gained like more understanding yes. and saw things I didn't see before because there's a lot going on. I will say the only issue is that fucking, I've never been that much of a Steely Dan fan and that fucking my old school song going through my goddamn head it will not stop it's there now it's there i find myself singing it and stuff even though they had a lulu version i of know it. me too and um i didn't even mind hearing it but i cannot i need to get it out of my I head maybe the doing this NW. for some reason yeah I don't know why. yeah well it's they had the, they showed the lyrics as oh, their oh no because i had my um I have yeah, my captions thingy, yeah. on. Yeah, I, I had to have my captions on because as much as I love a Scottish accent, I would not have been able to get through yeah. this without the captions. But I highly, if you have Hulu, I would say it's even worth, I mean, it's only a few bucks or something if you don't have Hulu or get Hulu for a month and watch it and watch a bunch of other stuff. It's definitely worth finding and watching. I just, I just laugh thinking about it. And I don't know the documentarian. I haven't looked him up. I don't know if he just made this thing because it happened to him. Yeah, I wondered in that, high yeah. school. And there's a lot of different things about it that can spark conversations. A lot of different ways to look at things, which is always a sign of a good documentary yes. when it makes you think about things and i love alan coming a lot of things now have more animation mm. i was thinking that one the worst roommate or the oh yeah that had animation oh yeah that's right i forgot that well the, i think the first documentary I'd see that. i saw use animation was the tower yeah the tower the one about did. the tower yeah. the mm -hmm. texas tower shootings and I was very leery of it, but a film yeah, critic the at the it. time, the Boston Grove type birth was very, very complimentary about it. And I said, well, if he likes it, I'll watch it. And it really worked. <laughs> I like the way documentaries are doing different things 
with reenactments yeah too so you're not watching some cheesy reenactment like that movie screwball about the steroids thing with the little kids yes playing that the, was oh funny God, oh did you so watch it fine? yeah i did you yes. and i talked about it i think because uh, i made you watch it yeah well, you didn't make I, me watch it, but you had mentioned it before. And I was looking for something to you watch, it. and I saw it was leaving whatever streaming service oh, it so was on. Funny. And I, but, <laughs> I kid that to Alex Rodriguez. It's so, so funny. <laughs> but I'm glad that documentaries realize that reenactments, when it's just actors reenacting stuff, doesn't it work. It almost takes you out of it more. Especially when I hate ones. on like the cheesier true crime docs, when it'll show a photo of the real house and it's like a blue mobile home or something. And then the house, the reenactment is like a brick Cape Cod. I know it's roses. just like that one on Thane Orange that I watched that the guy lived in a mobile right. home. It's like, and can't you he's find, like in a log cabin. Right. Like, and it's like, can't you, can't you find, especially if you're going to show real photos, I know. can you find something that looks anything like, and what I really hate is the ones where they have the real cops or whatever, pretending they're going up and knocking on the door. And it's like, I don't want to see a cop reenacting <laughs> his murder investigation. I know. Just show, but we're getting off Yes. but anyways so i and i guess that's probably it for tonight right yes is there anything else we need to say i don't think so right no just you can follow us on twitter and and all that stuff and instagram and facebook yeah oh hey i have a thing that people can do if you like us I know we're an acquired taste, but recommend us to friends and stuff like that. And leave you know, us a nice, a nice review. If you don't like us, well, you wouldn't be still well, listening. Don't leave. Well, yeah, I, I hate listening to podcasts when they say leave a five star review because no. I'm like, don't tell me how many fucking stars to give you. But also there's no but point. If you in do, but if you do like, right, reviews help us. And I know there are people out there who like us, who tell us they like us and stuff. So if you want to help us out a little, just go the extra step and write a review. It doesn't have to be great writing, but it does help us with our analytics and stuff to get reviews. And yes, it does. And I think that's it for tonight, right? Thank you. Yes. Okay. Good night. We both. Hey, why do you have to do that? Oh, what a naughty kitty. It's because I threw my pages on the floor when I'm done with them, and she feels the need to rip them up. Is it Kabibi? Yeah, she's a good girl. Go sit on your pillow like you were. She's putting her ears. Come here. Do you want to sit on my lap? Girl. Oh, what a good kitty. Come here, Kabibi. Sit down. Okay. Okay. Are you going to be good? Okay. Get out. Kabibi. You made my glasses and my headphones come off. You're going out because you are being very naughty. Now, come on. Let's go out. No, don't you go. She went under the bed. Okay, let me make sure I have these on right. Okay. Okay, she's going outside. You get over here. Aww. Or do I have to put you out in the hall? Because I want to get this done. She's looking at me like, go back to sleep. She was sleeping really nicely on the pillow. Let me, I'm putting her out. Okay, here you go. Out. Stop getting under. She keeps hiding under the bed and I can't get her out. You say bye to Aunt Momo. Bye, Kabibi. Bye, kitty, kitty. She's like, what?
Oh, poor little you girl. Because you're naughty. Now you go out. You go out. I'll let you when I'm done. Bye.